Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I am with uh, Dr. Sophie Quinney, who is a GP who lives in Cardiff and who was involved in establishing a Wales Gender Identity Service. Um, very interesting topic, and sometimes it can be a very controversial topic, but what we want to do today is to try to demystify the situation and try to detoxify the debate. So, first of all, Sophie, let's get a bit of background um, for yourself. I think you're from across the border, aren't, aren't you? Yes, I think my accent immediately gives me away, so I'm not going to try to, uh, to tell you otherwise. Absolutely. That's it. And you did your medical training? Barts. Barts Hospital, yeah. Very distinguished hospital. Absolutely. And you came to Wales how long ago? Oh, gosh. Um, I came across the border around 10 or 11 years ago to start my GP training in Gwent. At the time, I was based in East London. Um, I was an accident and emergency doctor. I did that for about nine, ten years, working in, in the inner city. And I felt a real affiliation for the South Wales Valleys. No idea where it came from. I have absolutely no ancestry of any nature, but something about it drew me to that area. So I applied to train, retrain as a GP in 2009, I think, and I travelled across in my old camper van, packed up with all my belongings, and um, spent the first six months based in the old Caffili Minus Hospital. So tell me, how did you become involved in this project to create a gender identity service? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think it all started around two years ago. I was working um, in a practice. I was contacted by uh, one of the practice nurses to say, we need your help. We have an asylum seeker from Saudi Arabia, young man, who has just arrived not long ago in Cardiff. He is administering testosterone that he's purchasing over the black market, through the black market. Um, and that was actually the reason why he had to flee his home, home country. And we need someone to help him, you know, continue that treatment to look after him. So I said, OK, sounds interesting. Absolutely no idea how to go about that. Uh, I don't think at that point I'd even met a trans person, let alone had a trans patient. So I met the chap and uh, we had a long conversation. I did a bit of reading, a bit of researching, uh, looked around me, tried to figure out if there was any support available. And that really spawned my interest, really. I, what I realised is that actually there were a number of GPs in my position who felt that this was something that was outside of their remit and also outside of their sphere of understanding and that they didn't feel confident or capable of looking after people in this position. And that goes for people who had been through the NHS gender clinics, um, who had been endorsed by the NHS service. 
who required uh, hormone therapies. The what do you think was missing in the service that needed to be improved? Well, the thing that stood out for me was that there was there is no service in at the time in Wales. So patients historically had to have their care in London, based in London, at the Charing Cross Gender Clinic. In order to access that care, they needed to satisfy the funders, the Welsh Commissioner, that they they were experiencing difficulties relating to their gender. And frustratingly, that meant that they had to go to mental health services to actually explore that in more detail in order that they could qualify for funding. Not only that, that out the other end, as a GP wanting to prescribe, at the time that I was looking after this young man, there was no endocrine support for me available in Cardiff and Vale at that time. What does that mean? That means if I have questions around hormones um, and I want to get some specialist help with that, I didn't have anyone that I could reach out to. So I felt that um, I was not alone. GPs were put in a difficult position and I felt that patients were stuck in the middle and really suffering for it. So I started to make inquiries. I wanted to meet people who were involved in the service. I met the Welsh Commissioner. I travelled to London to see what it's all about. I had some very, very productive meetings with some of the commissioning support units in Public Health Wales and eventually found myself being supported by Welsh Government to set up a prescribing clinic. Um, I became competent um, in prescribing hormones uh, with a lot of help from and training in London and I started running a clinic supported by Cardiff and Vale based in Canton in Cardiff. Was the need more common than you would have expected? Absolutely. I think at the time the Commissioner thought perhaps there'd be just a handful of people who were stuck. People who'd been through gender services, been told, yes, absolutely, you, you know, you require medical intervention, this is what we'd like you to have, and then being sent back to their GPs, and GPs obviously struggling to be able to cater for that. I think we thought in the beginning it would be just a handful. As word got round, um, I ended up with close to 100 patients. That was spanning three health boards, so I was looking after patients in Powys, Cardiff and Vale and Swansea, Swansea Bay. So, yes, a huge un- unmet need. Um, and not having a proper service available, how potentially dangerous was that for the individuals concerned? Yes, I, I think that's, that's a really good question. There are one or two individuals that I met uh, in my clinic who'd been endorsed for hormone therapy in, in, in 2017, as early as 2017, and had been completely in the dark about what to do about it um, ever since. There was no doubt that their mental health had suffered. As, as you probably, everyone's aware that the wait's are long enough as it is. I think for Wales it's even longer because of that extra component of having to go through psychiatric services first. And so people get to the end, they think, oh, this is absolutely incredible. They rush back to their GP, they think that's the day. And then to be coming to see me, you know, two years later was relief, but there was, there was no doubt in my mind that these people had suffered in the meantime and had gone through an awful lot of distress and worry. Some had, unfortunately, resorted to the internet to purchase these hormones for themselves and were entering into extremely unknown territory. So there was not only danger to well-being and mental health, but also I would argue that there was also people were putting themselves at unnecessary physical risk as well. As a consequence of the campaigning work, if Mm. you like, or of the representations that were made to Welsh Government by a number of different people and organisations, I imagine, 
Where are we at now in terms of the improvement uh, that such people can expect? Yes, I mean, when I expressed an interest, I, I was met with a massive support from the, from the community. Community stakeholders have driven this project from the very beginning. They've been very clear about what they want um, and they've been very measured about what can be achieved. So where we are now, I would argue, is probably in a better place than anywhere else in the UK. What we have, for example, is now a local gender team, uh, one in every health board, which with that comes a prescriber, someone similar to me, usually a GP, so based close to people's homes, where patients can access hormone treatment when it's endorsed by a gender clinic. We also have a gender clinic now just opening in Cardiff. So Wales has its first, arguably not necessarily its first, because there was one back in the loosely put together in the 80s, but, but first bona fide gender identity clinic that can do what's called the tertiary work, so the specialist uh, work of uh, making those endorsements. But then closer to home, people can access those hormone treatments. In terms of what we've done for GPs, GPs now have um, additional support for prescribing. There's online uh, training information, there's, more, there's increasing access to educational materials, professional development days happening around Wales. There's a really big push on behalf of health boards in e- across Wales to really support GPs in improving their skills and understanding. And the other thing that's come in that Welsh Government have endorsed, which is remarkable, and a first again in the UK, is that they have signed off on what's called an enhanced service. Now, as you know, GPs are contracted to provide essential services, so that's what's called under the General Medical uh, Services contract. At the moment, this type of care is is considered a specialist area. We now have um, a payment that supports delivering this service to patients under their own general practitioner under what's called an enhanced service. So there are enhanced service payments that are available now for GPs if they want to sign up. And other examples of those would be diabetes care. Back in the day, people used to travel to hospitals to see diabetes consultants and have their insulin. Nowadays, that care is brought, brought closer to home and in primary care. Administering Insulin is covered under a, under an enhanced service, as would be having a warfarin. So the same again. You used to be admitted to a hospital to have warfarin initiated. Now you can have it done by your GP. And in, in reward for that additional work, GPs are given a sum of money that allows them to provide that. Just to give an extra dimension to this podcast, mm. you've actually brought along with you one of your former patients. I have. Uh, Ben Marriott. Welcome, Ben. Hi. And we thought it would be a good idea to uh, have you along, really, so that we could have, if you like, first-hand testimony about what it's been like for um, somebody to to use the service. But maybe, Ben, if you could give us just a a little um, brief history of of yourself, because you were assigned female um, gender at birth. That's right, yeah. But I imagine that quite soon you uh, decided that your real gender was uh, was male. So explain. Absolutely. Um, I I identify as a non-binary trans man and I didn't uh, really come to the realisation of that until I was sort of in my mid-twenties when I sort of came out and socially transitioned, changed my name, things like that. And at the time, as Sophie said, you know, I went to the GP, who was very helpful, and said, put their hands up and said, actually, I've got no idea what I've got to do. But they looked into it, 
and managed to send the referral for the gender clinic at Charing Cross in London. But in order to secure funding, I had to have two mental health assessments and there was a six-month wait for those assessments and they were a couple of months apart. Um, And so that was before the referral would even get sent. I I went along to those. I didn't have a great experience because the person doing the assessment didn't have any idea about gender quite honestly it was a very overall mental health assessment and I had depression at the time and I remember he said to me oh I'm not I don't want to refer you because because you know you've got depression and that might be the cause of your gender issues now luckily I'm quite um, capable of speaking up for myself and I know the system so I sort of said to him well how about we you try me on these antidepressants and you send the referral so I can be stabilized in the meantime because the wait is three two three years anyway um so luckily um he agreed to do that and i got on the waiting list i was um really lucky as well i went to see a gp you know and i said look i'm really keen to start testosterone because uh, you know as you can imagine it's very difficult to go about living in the world fulfilling your duties as, for social transition using men's toilets and things when you don't pass as male it's it's very difficult you know you, you get misgendered people people look at you and they assume your gender. That, that's, that's the world we live in at the moment. So I went to, the, to my GP, who was great. He was really, he was really kind and, and helpful. And the same thing, he said, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to go and look up this for you. I said, you know, it's really affecting my mental health, not being able to start testosterone, having to wait three years. Is there any way you can prescribe what's called a bridging prescription for me so that I can start testosterone before I get to the clinic? And I was really lucky in that he agreed to do that for me. It's very rare. I I know a lot of trans people in the community and it very rarely happens. So I'm forever grateful to him because I basically had a two-year start ahead of other trans people and was able to start my medical transition. And I mean, the positive impact on my mental health of being able to do that cannot be understated. I mean, you know, by the time a trans person goes to the GP and has got the courage to go there and say, look, I, I've got gender issues, I think I'm transgender, I want to start hormones, it's not something that they will be take, have taken lightly. You know, this is, by the time someone is at that stage, this is something they've thought about, they've considered. I was lucky I had a GP who went above and beyond to research it. He researched what blood tests he needed to monitor so so he could do the endocrinology side of it. Again, so it wasn't being unsafe. I know a lot of people who do resort to buying hormones off the internet or even people who have been prescribed them legitimately from their GPs or, or from the gender clinic but or private gender clinics sometimes as well but they're unable to get their bloods done at the GPs. You know, so there are people being put in dangerous positions because they can't have their levels monitored. And um, something really simple, like a really simple blood test, just to check your levels once every six months. There were lots of, lots of gaps. I was really pleased with this GP. I moved then to the other side of Cardiff, which meant I moved out the area. So I had to sign on to another GP. And I just presumed, at this point, you know, I'd been on testosterone for four years or so, and I presumed it would be a very simple matter of them taking over my care. But as it happened, it was one of the ones that I guess as Sophie said, um, weren't doing the enhanced care. They told me their practice policy was that they didn't administer hormones for trans people. I I was a bit gobsmacked because I was like, you know, it didn't occur to me that having gone through everything, been to London four times on the megabus to see the gender specialist, get everything signed off, 
didn't occur to me that the GP could then just turn around and say, actually, no, I'm not going to do that for you. So I was really upset because I didn't know what I was going to do. At the time, I didn't know that Sophie's Clinic existed. I can't remember exactly how I found out, but I think that Sophie's work with the trans community means that most people found out about the clinic, that it was available. It was all through word of mouth, through people posting in support groups saying, help, this has happened, what am I going to do? I don't know what's going to happen if, my, if I can't get my testosterone or my uh, whatever other hormones you need for trans women. So that's how I ended up being signed up. And luckily, Sophie was able to take over my care, my monitoring, my blood tests and everything. As you can imagine, very distressing for trans men, particularly if they haven't had a hysterectomy. You know, things like stopping your testosterone can mean that your periods start again, your body fat redistributes to a female shape. You know, the thought medically detransitioning against your will is pretty horrifying really and it's really detrimental to have that even the prospect of it part of the reason possibly that GPs don't feel confident doing it is precisely because of all this negative media attention about trans issues and people deciding to detransition and a lot of the transphobia and scaremongering in the media at the moment I mean I can imagine as a GP that you probably would be I don't want to be held responsible if this person decides to detransition or anything like that. I know obviously there's a financial aspect, as you said as well, uh, or not feeling confident. I think that it is something so simple. When you look at the bare bones of it, what needs to be done? It's great news about all the things that positive things that are happening in Wales now. You know, if someone now begins their journey of transitioning, they'll have a much better experience than myself and my friends have had. Um, Did you eventually have surgery then? Um, yeah, I had surgery. I had to travel to Hull to have surgery. The funding for Wales, they provide sort of, I think it was a choice of six clinics. None of them are in Wales. I think there's uh, Manchester, there's one in Brighton. So I went up to Hull because he had a shorter waiting list but also positive results. I'd seen some of my friends had, had used a surgeon up there. I sort of had to go up there six times. For, for again, my initial appointment, a five-minute consultation, which when you think how far it is, is, is kind of ridiculous. So five-minute consultation, and then I had to go up again for the pre-op, again for the operation, and then again to have a revision surgery and things like that. So the amount of time off work and travelling, but it'd be great, if, obviously, if there was a surgeon closer to home. But yeah, that, that's my situation. So I've had, I've had surgery now. Really happy with the care up there. I just wish it wasn't so far away. I think most of the controversy actually is related to trans women rather than trans men, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah. And it has become a deeply controversial, very toxic climate, hasn't it? And I, I had some experience of this because a couple of months ago I went to a meeting which was held in a pub in Newport at mm-hmm. the time when the Green Party conference was taking place in conference centre there. And it was an extremely heated meeting, and this was a meeting of women who take the view that trans women are not real women. And they call themselves, or or elements of them, call themselves women's space. And, of course, what they say is that they want to have their own space, and they resent the fact that these people who they do not regard as genuine women um, and so far as they are concerned have not had the life experience of being a woman 
are then trying to intrude on their space. So that's one of the elements that they were going on about. They were also expressing concerns about people going into schools and trying to, as they saw it, proselytise for uh, transitioning. And another thing that they have a concern about is the people who don't actually want to have surgery but want to change their outward appearance so that they may be men but they want to present as women. This is how they describe it. How do you respond, Ben, to those sorts of concerns? Uh, I know the group you're referring to, Women's Place UK. They're a notorious group of transphobes, basically, and their meetings mainly consist of basically uh, scaremongering about trans women. They say that they want a debate, but if you as a trans person try to sign up to go to any of these meetings, you get refused, you can't get a ticket. I had a cis woman friend who offered to go and sort of speak up on our behalf. They looked at her social media and deduced that she wasn't a transphobe. So therefore, basically, it's it's a gathering of transphobes is is what the meetings are. I've seen clips on YouTube videos and things, and a lot of it is just making fun of trans women. Um, But yeah, the scaremongering. I mean, the the whole thing about surgery. I haven't had um, genital surgery. I've no intention of having genital surgery because it's not something I feel that I require. And the same obviously goes for a lot of trans women. I mean, I think that your genitals is nobody's business but your own. It doesn't doesn't correspond to your gender or affect your life in any way. I think that the, the trans women are we call them TERFs, Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. It's, it's a label they sort of came up with themselves. Now, they see it as an insult, so I tend to stick to transphobe because I think it's more clear-cut. And the whole idea of that people are going into schools and forcing young children to think that they're trans, I mean, it's the most absurd thing I've, I've ever heard. I mean, what's happened is that there's much more media awareness of trans, non-binary issues, options that are available, so, so that people are, thankfully, able to say much earlier, oh, this is me, this is how I feel. I mean, I, I was 25 when I realised that I, it was possible for me to transition. The reason it took me that long was because I didn't meet a trans man until I was in my 20s. If I had seen something in school, I, I very probably would have realised earlier. I think a lot of the transphobes, they equate transition to gender conformity. They think that trans people are transitioning because they are gender non-conforming or gay and they want to conform. I mean, whereas that's not the case at all. I mean, I have so many, hundreds of, I have lots and lots of trans friends. And I mean, of all genders, all sexualities, all hobbies, all interests. I know tomboy trans women. I know very effeminate gay trans men. Trans people are as varied as as cis people. And, you know, the whole notion that the transition is is, you know, moving towards anti-homosexual, they call it. You know, they say it's, oh, you, you, you transitioned because you didn't want to be a lesbian. I mean, I'm bisexual. You know, that's typically the thing. I mean, most of the media attention is, is focused on trans women, scaremongering, you know, talking as if they're some sort of threat. And they will use particular examples of rare cases where a trans woman has done something untoward as a reason to not allow... Any trans women into women's There's this space. famous case, of course, isn't yeah. there, relating to this yeah. person, Karen White, yeah, that's right. who identified as female. Mm-hmm. 
got into a um, women's prison and then sexually assaulted some yeah. uh, other women prisoners. The fact of the matter is that, you know, cis women assault women. These things happen. It's, to use that as a stick to beat trans people with is, is just ridiculous. Trans women at the moment are bearing the brunt of the sort of media onslaught and attention. And I think that trans men are very often left out of the conversation. People don't often really consider... When people talk about trans issues, they think of trans women. So I think that, you know, the only thing that I've encountered as a trans man is a lot of the time, again, is just being infantilised and said, you know, you don't know your own mind. You're just a tomboy, this type of thing. They believe they're the suffragettes fighting for some noble cause when, in, a, in reality, feminism obviously is for all women, black women, trans women. If it's not for all women, then it's not, it's not feminism, and I think that that's, um, that's what's the difficulty that they, they don't understand. How difficult do you think it will be to resolve this situation so that the toxicity is taken out of it. I think the, the media needs to take responsibility. There are something like 400 and something anti-trans articles in the past year alone. And I think that trans people need to have positive media representation. So when we do have media representation, it's very much telling the story of a trans person's narrative of their life. When did you realise you were trans? What did, you, did you have surgery? This, that and the other. And I think that what we need to see is more trans people's lives and stories where the fact that they're trans is, is not the main issue. Normalisation, representation. Um, luckily, there, there are many more trans characters in, in TV and shows and things now, so that's great. But I definitely think that the media st need to stop using it for for clicks because it's a it's a controversial topic and I think that stirring up controversy gets lots of comments on on social media but it's having a real impact on trans people's lives and that's what they don't realize the mental health of trans people is suffering because they have to see this every day they have to deal with this every day they have to deal with hateful comments if they choose to have a social media presence and it's extremely draining I mean myself I can speak for myself I, I block transphobic people I encounter but it it could be almost a full-time job just you know battling insults and debating your sort of right to exist which it shouldn't be something that we even hear talking about so Sophie yes just putting into a bit of a historical context yes comparison would you say that the position of the trans debate is currently similar mm. to the, the gay debate from several decades ago? Yes, I, I would say probably that's right. If you take a bird's-eye view of this, it's it's a very sad and sorry situation. Um, I would echo Ben's comment around how what the impact on the ground is. As a, as a doctor, as a GP, as someone who looks after and meets a lot of trans people as patients, I see their mental health suffering firsthand. Um, I, you know, I have had in the in the in this year just alone, I've had um, young trans women coming to tell me that they've been using women's toilets for for years, and all of a sudden they're being asked to leave, and it's having a devastating impact on their mental health. I can't imagine anything more humiliating than being asked to leave my my toilet. You know, where I go and wherever that may be. I, I think a lot of them. Um gender non-conforming cis women are also suffering as well. Anyone with a masculine appearance, I've got a friend who um, has short hair and, and she's told me that in the past year or so she's getting challenged 
just when she's using the toilets, people are starting to police, gender police things like toilets and things, and it's it's obviously really upsetting. Yeah, so I think however people are feeling this, it's impacting on their mental health and well-being. And I find that deeply upsetting. From a bird's eye view, I think you're absolutely right. This first thing to say is that this is unique to the UK. Nowhere else in the world are we going backwards and, and forming these kind of fear-filled views around... Um, gender diversity you know elsewhere in the world people are making progressive changes within society to be accepting and embracing and supportive a lot of trans people i know who are in their 30s and 40s are talking about where shall i move shall i move to canada people who are able of financial means are thinking well i don't want to be here it's toxic um so so literally that's that's sort of the situation that we're in at the moment i suspect broadly that it's just a matter of time people will fight for their rights they have more visibility now than ever before there are people absolutely who outweigh the negative narrative with positive and the community will get through it just in the way that homosexuality we got through that you know conflating homosexuals with paedophiles was a thing it happened it went on for years it damaged gay men the same thing is happening here we're conflating trans women with being sexual predators in some way, having some degree of criminality, when, of course, that's absolute nonsense. There's no evidence for it. And I would like to think that, as a, as a society, that will pass. I think it is vital, and I think Ben said this already, that the media narrative is shaping public discourse. I meet lots of people who are not actually part of these groups, who are well-educated, people, friends of mine who come to me because they know that I am work in an area of medicine that look, takes care of, of trans folk and, and have questions. They say, oh, I read this. What do you think of this? And I spend a lot of time having to educate people who feel confused by the current narrative. And actually, a lot of this is needing demystifying because so much of it is baseless. So much of it lacks evidence. And I would say to journalists... Please think about sourcing the evidence before publishing what would otherwise be a human interest story because it is causing considerable harm to my patients. Sophie Queenie, Ben Marriott, thank you both very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.